Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to formative books from childhood the other has never read. I'm Brandon, he, him. I feel like I should have a snarky way to introduce myself. I'm Ren, they, he, and my shape, at least of my brain, is currently an incredibly twisted up pretzel because this book... This book I described to a friend as as doing brain yoga. I might not know what yoga is then. <laughs> it's like like a like a little bendy, twisty exercise, stretchy session. Sure, I'll go with it. Have you never seen yoga in action or anything? I, I just don't think of yoga as like a pretzel thing. It seems relaxing. Oh yeah, no, no, no. There's there's relaxing parts of yoga, but for the most part, I feel like the relaxing parts of yoga are when you get out of the weird contorty shapes and lay down flat. Are the shapes regular though? Are they sometimes made of right angles? Mm, not generally, actually. There's a fairly triangular pose. But is it equilateral? Probably not when I do it. <laughs> Anyway, we read one of my picks, a pick that I almost entirely forgot to even include in this show ever until we were talking about how short Lost on a Mountain in Maine is, and then it just kind of resurfaced in my brain. We read Flatland by Edwin Abbott Abbott. That's what the A is for? Yeah. <laughs> Although sometimes this book is attributed to a square. So I'm going to ask a question. I know this is like the sort of question that we would have for about halfway through the recording, but I need to know now. Because my copy of this book has a very sparse cover. The back is blank except for a barcode. There's not a single page that's like, you know, published in blank date. There's no information to be had in this book, except for there's a section that's prefaced to the second and revised edition, 1884, but that's like already in the book. And so I'm wondering, is this book actually like a modern book that's trying to present itself as something that was written in 1884, or was it actually written in 1884? This book does take, I believe... The our, our current spot for oldest book that we read on this podcast, it was published in 1884. Well, hell. Because I could see this being a modern book that they were trying to write in the style and pretend was written in 1884. And I feel like that might have made more sense to me. But no. Okay. I believe the reason it would say that it was the revised edition for 1884... I think it probably... I couldn't find, like, super solid information on this, but I believe it appeared in a serialized form, as many Victorian works did. And then 1884 was when it was released as a novel. I think it maybe was first released in a serialized fashion in, like, 1883 or something. It was close at the same time, though. So, yeah, I think Flatland has dethroned uh, the Tower Treasure as oldest book we've read for the podcast by several decades.
so yeah flatland how even to tell anyone who doesn't already know what this book is I mean, maybe start with content warnings. It's, there's some, there's some. There's a list. All the content warnings exist in this book. There is classism. There is eugenics. There is genocide. There is non-consensual sexual activity. There is misogyny, asterisk. The author says it's satire, but whether or not it's successful satire is a question people debate. Oh. Even at the time. There's a lot of shapes with very acute dangerous angles <laughs> i feel like eugenics is probably the biggest one yeah it's it's a constant and the classism slash eugenics that are highlighted in it are just incredibly disturbing but they're because of the abstract nature of this book some of the examples you just kind of read them and you're like oh, okay that's weird and then you go to bed and you lay there and you're like wait a minute actually in this world if that's the case then like that's actually torture and that's really horrifying and you lay there for a good half an hour and then you text brandon on discord and say what the fuck brandon and he doesn't know what you mean because he doesn't know what part of the book you're in wasn't specific enough i was debating if christofascism is the right word because it's technically not it's sort of theocratic absolutism but it is a satire of the anglican church I was wondering, one of my notes is like, how much of this is metaphor for something else? All of it. Else. Okay, that helps. Flatland, a romance of many dimensions by A Square, is a memoir of sorts written by a, a nameless square. So, you know, a respectable, but not especially high class polygon to us the denizens of spaceland uh, a world of three dimensions that he has only had the barest experience with this is really a novella in terms of length it's 88 pages yeah so it's not super long the first half of it is basically the RPG setting book for Flatland. <laughs> the square is just telling you about how Flatland works, how everybody in Flatland, well, Flatland itself is, as the name implies, a realm of being that exists in only two dimensions. They do not know three dimensions. Everybody in Flatland is a shape of some kind, be, be they triangles or squares or on up even to the most exalted circles, shapes of greater regularity, that is to say shapes with their sides being as close to the same as, as possible, are higher class, and then from there the number of sides makes you higher class as you go. Women are literally one-dimensional beings. They are lines. Straight lines, as it says usually, which is A, redundant, and B, heteronormative. It actually says later on, though, that they're not lines. That they are extremely, extremely thin parallelograms.
Which would explain why they're able to stab so well. Yeah. Men basically start as triangles. And so like the, the lowest class men are isosceles triangles. So they don't have two of their sides are close to the same length, if not exactly the same length, but the third side is not. This makes them lower class, but it also makes them kind of the soldier class because they're pointy. And in Flatland, angles are literally dangerous. Yeah, when you want to kill things in Flatland, you stab them with yourself. Yeah. Consequently, you may be like, wait a second. If women are lines, or very close to lines, doesn't that make them really dangerous? Yes, it does. (laughs) They have to wander around constantly giving a peace cry so that you don't accidentally impale yourself on a woman when you're just walking around. And sometimes, if you spook them, they just massacre everybody. Like they're some kind of horses made of like uranium or bullets. I didn't think that analogy through. No, the women are just like really stabby bullets. (laughs) I don't understand. It's... it's... Our, Our guide, the Nameless Square, does allude to at least one occasion where like great loss of life occurred essentially because of a woman-related incident. There's several women-related murder incidents. There's a whole, like, political rebellion that's quelled because the government gets them all up in a room with a bunch of women and makes the women mad, and then the women kill everyone with themselves. Well, what else are you going to use? It's not clear if they have, like, objects they can do anything with. They specify that they don't have hands. It's very difficult to comprehend and visualize while you're reading this book. When Brandon told me this is the book we were going to read, we had about two to three weeks to read it before our recording. And he said, don't don't be led astray by the fact that it is 87 pages long. Do not try to read this all in one sitting on Saturday. We record on Sunday. And I was like, all right, sure, I'll take your advice, even though I don't believe you. I had to read it like basically a chapter a night because it it was exhausting. And maybe that won't be the case for everyone, but I'm someone that really tries to visualize exactly what's going on when I read. And trying to visualize this world was tiring <laughs> as I was reading it. Especially when we went into further chapters where he decides to take his like Christmas Carol Scrooge trip into line land and then space land i made a similar note where i was like oh the latter half of this book is just kind of the christmas carol with geometry yeah so then then when i go and i'm trying to envision what it's like for somebody in flatland to go visit lion land where there isn't even a second dimension and then trying to visualize what it's like for this sphere guy to I I just realized I don't know how to say that word sphere. Sphere? Sphere? Mm. Let's start that over. And then how difficult it is to envision what it's like for somebody from Spaceland to try to explain to somebody from Flatland what things are like. It just, this was an entire mental exercise to read this book. So after the first half of the book giving us the, the setting and the mechanics and lengthy explanation of political movements within Flatland. We get the the story, the plot. It's the eve of the the year 
2000. It's 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 New Year's They're Eve, partying, 1999. Like it's 1999. Uh, in Flatlands calendar, and our intrepid Square, who is our guide in Flatland, who is a mathematician, is visited by the ghost of Dimension's future, I guess, which is to say, <laughs> a sphere from Spaceland, a place with three dimensions. And the sphere is like Noble Square. I have come to preach the gospel of three dimensions to you because, in fact, the world is three-dimensional. You just can't perceive the third. You don't know how to perceive the third dimension. So the sphere goes through various efforts to convince the square that this is indeed the case. Because to the square, the sphere just looks like a circle because he only sees the part of the sphere that is in his plane in Flatland at the time and the sphere can go like up and down but that just makes it seem like he can somehow get bigger and smaller or disappear altogether and then the sphere finally just like yanks the square out of flatland so he can see flatland from above basically which allows him to see inside of everybody because that's how it works (laughs) and convinces the square that there is indeed a third dimension and that the dogmatic belief in two dimensions is erroneous and then the sphere tries to as the square looks on preach this to the governing council of flatland who we discover has heard this before roughly every thousand years they promptly have anyone that wasn't a circle who witnessed this locked up for life and all of the guards who did the locking up executed afterwards so as to suppress the gospel of three dimensions And we discover that, indeed, our intrepid square is himself writing all of this from prison, where he is presumably for the remainder of his days. The end. I found so much very interesting about this, but the thing that was really overarchingly very interesting to me was before Square got yanked into Spaceland, he somehow magically went accidentally into lion land it sounded like a dream he says it's a dream but it was confusing as to whether or not it was a dream or a vision or like he really was visiting it or what because sphere shows up and refers to it exactly it, it made it sound like square's dreams existed with some physicality enough that someone who could see the third dimension outside of Flatland could see what he was dreaming about. And exactly how all of that works is not fully explored at all any further. Yeah, so, you know, the nebulosity, I don't think nebulosity is a word, but, you know, we're making it happen. The nebulosity of that being real or not aside, it seems to me as if everyone who is sort of, you know, in a dimension below, like a dimension with less aspects i don't know how to phrase it when square who is from 2d land went to go visit the king of 1d land and tried to explain everything to him the king refused to believe it and basically kicked him out and like couldn't comprehend but then immediately right after that his grandson proposed an idea to him of a third dimension and then he made his grandson basically like go to bed without supper for being an idiot and then he's visited by by mr sphere i don't know why i didn't know until today that i don't know how to say the word sphere sphere 
Sphere. Sphere. Yeah. Mr. Sphere. <laughs> My mouth doesn't want to do it. Mr. Spear tries to explain to Mr. Square the gospel of three dimensions, as you put it, and he can't comprehend. So basically, like, it hurts your brain to think of the ones below and above. It, it, it then sent me on this, like, philosophical spiral of, like, well, okay, we're in 3D. We can't possibly comprehend a dimension more advanced than our own. And then I wrote in my note, how dare this book make me think? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's presumably the point. <laughs> Other than that, my notes on this book are basically the various points of book where I was horrified. And then the various points of book where I laughed so hard. I don't even know where to start. There, There is some like very interesting world building throughout this little adventure most of it's not ultimately relevant to the story or anything in lineland for example everybody exists on the same line you can't move around people because there's no there's no dimension to move into that isn't just the dimension you're already in um, and there as with flatland where where men are two-dimensional shapes and women are at least perceived to be one-dimensional in lineland women are points and men are lines and square is like, well, how do you tell each other apart? Because you can only see the end of somebody. So it all looks like a point to you, right? You can't perceive somebody's length. But in Lineland, if you're a line, that is to say a man, you have two voices, uh, a male voice and a female voice, which seem to be at opposite ends of the line. And so that's how you tell a, that somebody's a man is they have two voices. And B, how long they are by kind of like like a dolphin being able to gauge the difference in travel time of his voice, essentially. There's like prevalent senses required for use of each of these dimensions. So in Lineland, the prevalent sense that's used is hearing in all things. Like you get married by doing this like choral not a duet because you have two wives for every husband this this like musical number with your spouses and reproduction seems to be via song essentially because you can't you can't physically meet if you if you just aren't already next to each other in flatland there's a couple of senses at play uh the most base one is touching because then you can tell whether or not somebody how how pointy their points are and ergo what shape they are although feeling is seen as sort of like a base low level uh sense to be using and if you're really advanced you you just use sight only and so the the note i wrote is a uh, big naked sun vibes bringing us back to asimov yeah polite society only identifies each other's shapes by viewing not seeing as as it were <laughs> definitely no feeling but also back to the to the vocal thing for just a second i wrote down a quote that i i thought was very funny because you know mr square's talking to the king of lineland and the king of lineland is like referring to mr square with she pronouns and uh mr square is just like what i'm a i'm a man dude what the hell 
And the king says, You are not a man, but a feminine monstrosity with a bass voice and an utterly uneducated ear. And, well, A, my note that I wrote on my phone to that is, that kind of felt like a personal attack. But also, it was very amusing because the square only had one voice. So <laughs> they just assumed square was square was a lady. But then also, right after that, He's like, no, I'll show you. I'll show you that there's there's two different dimensions. I'm going to go backwards and forward. And then <laughs> he goes backwards so much that the king can't see him anymore. And then the king yells out, she is vanished. She is dead. And then I wrote, things in Lineland have no object permanence. It's not in his reality anymore, right? I did wonder at that time, what, what happens in Lineland when somebody dies? disappears I does guess. does their body disappear or does their corpse just stay on the line indefinitely because like you can't make it go anywhere else that's so weird to think about yeah the questions that arise from the questions that just have no answers and hurts your brain to try to think about <laughs> so those were two of the lines where i huh, lines in line man where i I guess I'd gotten over the the setting building things that made me horrified enough to start laughing at the book again. Because I, I giggled pretty hard at She Is Vanished, She Is Dead. Right, so you, you mentioned f- feeling is one way to identify someone's shape, but it's not considered proper. Sight in Flatland is the preferred way, but it does take a little bit of finesse because the thing is you're you're seeing everybody side on you're not looking down on them so that you see all of their sides you're just seeing whatever side is facing you or or part of a couple sides if they're kind of at a little bit of an angle to you so square explains that you have to really sort of train your ability of sight identification because the way you have to be able to do it is you have to be able to gauge when a side is receding away from you and by how much and he introduces this notion that there's just kind of this fog in flatland that is just sort of ambiently sufficiently thick to create a noticeable difference in like the degree to which your, the visibility of a side recedes from someone who's, say, a pentagon versus somebody who's, say, an equilateral triangle or, or whatever, which really just made me think that Flatland runs on an N64, which made everything better for me from then on. The amount of times that I had to just, like, pick up random objects around me and stare at them side on while reading this was not a small amount. Now, you might be asking yourself, listener... Why don't they use color? <laughs> we don't talk about the color war. We don't okay? talk about Random. the color war. And, uh, I mean, Square does a lot. It resulted in much murder. People got very enamored of color at one point in the past and started painting themselves, and that was fine. And then, and then at a certain point, someone realized, some, some base isosceles realized that he could trick the eye by painting himself such that he appeared to be a higher class shape and basically like tricked a woman into whatever the flatland version of sleeping with him is and then that's when everything went went to absolute crap for the color and so we don't do color anymore 
in in Flatland. It's not it's not allowed. That entire political machination was so weirdly complex. To to differentiate everyone, they started assigning different colors to different classes. And the circles, who are the highest class priest guys, didn't really want to get painted. Yeah, they thought that was kind of crass. And they couldn't really find a good way to get the common people to stop with this whole color revolution until that one random triangle got a wife better than his station allowed. And then the priests were able to rally up all of the anger of all of the women because of this one instant incident and get the women to kill all of the rabble rousers of like the color revolution. Yeah, and what was really going on was that the priestly class, the circles, who are not genuinely circles, but they are polygons of such exceptional number that they're just considered circles. The priestly class was seeing the side-based classes start to break down. And in particular, there was some implication that like they started to be associated more as like kind of in a class with women, which they did not like. So ultimately that entire episode was a sort of foreshadowing the end of the plot, as it were. The circles, the priestly upper class who are at the top of society playing off lower class people against each other to maintain their own station. Yeah, and women are definitely the lowest class in this entire society, even though they are allowed to live. So there, there's that. I'll get to what I mean by that in a minute. But there are so many incidents in this book, and I stopped writing them down, with Square asserting constantly that women are very dumb. One of the earlier chapters, he's talking about the really skinny triangle dudes who are usually like military and police and stuff. And he says that they are creatures almost on a level with women in their lack of intelligence. And I was just like, screw you, Square. Yeah, Square Square tells us that at least the belief of Flatland society, and it's not clear if this is actually true, it's probably not. The belief of Flatland society is that a being's brain is essentially in their angles. And so if you have a larger angle, you are smarter. It's absolutely not true. And I feel like something he says a little bit later gives it away. Because he says women aren't allowed to learn how to read or become educated because they just wouldn't be able to handle it. But it, it, it just makes everything like completely... It just bursts the whole thing wide open there. It's like you're keeping the women uneducated on purpose. Yeah. This book is a satire of, in general, Victorian society. And a lot of it is very much in this kind of self-fulfilling aspect of Flatland society, where these beliefs about angles and regularity and sides determining things like intelligence like trustworthiness etc and so they just kind of like don't give the people who are quote too dumb uh any education or or whatever are self-fulfilling right so they say women are too dumb to learn to read so we just don't bother right if you don't educate them obviously they're not going to know how to read right 
and square buys into some of these things, but I think that we as readers are meant to see them for the total fabrications of a class of society that they are. My assessment of Square was pretty solidified by page 20, exactly who Square was, in that he thought that he was kind of this, like, almost enlightened, I don't know, like, liberal sort in some ways, because he was talking about the treatment of irregulars and the the triangle dudes that were born with a less than 10 degree angle. Because if you're born with a less than 10 degree angle, you have a couple of different options in society, although those options aren't options aren't choices that you make there what what is done to you there's a couple different methods of essentially torture that these negative uh, less than 10 degree triangles have to endure and square presents it as this very like oh i'm very enlightened and i think that this is the way they should be treated but the options are you just get killed at birth so eugenics or the, the cheap method, which is uh, what Square calls it. And this is the thing that I yelled at you about, like totally horrifying me and made me think about it for days. If you're born with less than 10 degrees, sometimes you get sent to a school and you're chained up to be used as a teaching tool for kids of the middle class. And what happens to you is the kids get to just feel you all the time to feel what a crappy low level, low intelligence awful creature feels like until you are so worn down by constant feeling that then they kill you and that whole sentence worn down by constant feeling stuck in my head for way longer than was comfortable i couldn't find any source that specified this but i kind of wondered at that point if that was specifically meant to be a critique of the way that victorian society interfaced with non-white people because at the time this book was written there was this growing interest in the quote exotic locales that the british empire touched and you have a lot of travelogues and things like that um, talking about all of these places usually through the lens of some wealthy white person who went there and got to see it and some of that does include, you know, non-white people brought back to England as kind of curiosities. I don't know if any of them were literally utilized for educational purposes until they died or, or whatever, but certainly some became attractions to come see for, for money, to like come gawk at this person from some other part of the world and usually with a gloss of kind of like, I kind of feel like that's probably some of what this is getting at, is, is calling out some of the inherent inhumanity of that practice. Well, you know, in our usual fashion, I just read the book. I didn't look up anything about it. I didn't read any synopses or, or anything like that. So, so all of my thoughts are just base level what I had just from reading it. So please enlighten me as to who the author of this was. Or actually, let's. I think we need to back up. When did you read this, and why did you read this, and what the hell? So I read this in the summer following my freshman year of high school. The school system where I grew up, we had a governor's school that served the area. And if you don't know what a governor's school is, it's a separate school for 
quote, gifted learners or, or whatever at the uh, high school level. Where I grew up, the governor's school was just for math and science. And it didn't start until 10th grade. So my freshman year, I applied. And so I was I knew I was going to start going to the governor's school for my math and my science classes starting the following year. And because I knew that my first math class was going to be Algebra 2, and um, Algebra was a thing I had taken in 8th grade a year prior, and felt uncomfortable that I was going to be good enough at it to keep up because my eighth grade algebra teacher was not great. I found a like summer algebra tutor. Sadly, I don't remember her name, but my mom found a tutor who was a retired math teacher. And so I went over to her house once a week or so for a little while I think I, I don't remember exactly we just worked through some algebra one concepts just kind of reviewing things making sure stuff was good but she did like to share some of what else she was doing or like interesting math things that she found in the world she was clearly one of those people who did have a genuine interest in how math appears in the world around us and in other things. Because I was also reading Jurassic Park that summer, we talked about Jurassic Park a little bit. She showed me her copy of Jurassic Park. She'd been like working out some of the dragon curve that appears in Jurassic Park as the thing that you see at the beginning of sections as the dragon curve or the dragon fractal progresses. And she also showed me Flatland and loaned me Flatland and I read Flatland. I did not have all the context for what the book is about certainly but i did have a lot of the mathematical context for things like there is some just good math humor in here like when square des describes what a flatland house is like and he explained that the, the the roof runs between point r point o and point f such that it's line ro and line of are the roof of the house get it oh. Because in geometry, you, you label the sides of a polygon according to what the, the designation you give in the point at either end. I had not caught. Yeah, there's some little things that are just math humor and not like a satire or anything. They're just math humor. I was pretty abysmal at almost every math except for two. First one was statistics. Statistics is the math that makes the most sense to me. The second one that makes the most sense to me is geometry. So I didn't have a hard time with any of the geometry of this. Thank goodness. But I also didn't even think about any of the jokes as jokes. I was so busy trying to wrap my head around what any of this looked like. But now that you say it, I'm really mad at myself for not noticing. But yeah, that's the story of how I read this. I consider it formative more than necessarily a favorite because I don't know that I liked it per se, but I definitely liked that I had read it and understood the references that sometimes people especially teachers that I kind of looked up to, might make to it, right? I'm constantly in a state of wondering to myself if you and I really would have got along well in high school or if I would have hated you and thought you were a smug asshole. Probably that second thing. That's okay. I don't think you would have liked me either. Kind of a mirror to your little story here. You had like a mentor figure who recommended this book to you. I had a mentor figure who really wanted me to, I don't know, like embrace some sort of like weirder aspects of myself. She was always like trying to encourage me to branch out and told me that like before I do anything with my life, I need to go on like a bunch of adventures. She brought in this massive book and handed it to me and said, I think you'll really like this. It's weird. And maybe you'll start thinking about 
some like mysticism type stuff and it was the freaking mists of avalon i don't think it had the desired effect because she she tried to get me to read like other like spiritualism and like wicca related things after that but what it actually did was get me to go on a huge king arthur kick naturally well you want to know more about edwin abbott abbott yes yes so edwin abbott abbott was an english schoolmaster theologian and anglican priest really yeah He's unkind to the priestly class. This is all going to start falling into place here real soon. Okay. His parents, uh, Edwin Abbott and Jane Abbott, were first cousins. <laughs> okay, okay, not judging, not judging. The reason that his middle name is Abbott and his last name is also Abbott is that when his parents were married, his mother's surname was already Abbott. I don't know if that's an Anglican thing or a British thing or whatever, but I guess it was just kind of child's name mother's maiden name father's name so that's why his name is abbott twice okay Uh, he was born and raised in london received highest honors in math and classics and theology went into teaching uh, became headmaster of the city of london school in 1865 and pretty much stayed there for the following almost two and a half decades i think until his time of retiring in 1889 from education to focus on writing throughout his life he wrote a variety of things although he is now most known for flatland it's arguably one of the less prominent things in his own time he wrote a variety of theological texts he wrote textbooks on various subjects I think he wrote books about education. He wrote mostly post-Flatland, as far as I could tell, uh, what are called early church novels, which seem to be sort of a Victorian style of historical fiction about the early church. I, I, I didn't dig up a lot about that specifically, but it's it's in there too. He was, for his time, considered sometimes almost scandalously progressive with some of his beliefs about education. Like he thought that, for example, education should have greater equality for men and women because in the Victorian era, women did not have the educational opportunities that men did. It just wasn't a thing. Certainly some of what Flatland is doing with demonstrating that the women aren't given the opportunities and that's probably why they are less prominent, not because they are inherently stupid or something was probably a critique of the system that he saw in his own society. His theology also tended to be a bit more open-minded than traditional Anglican theology at the time, and, and so sometimes his theological works caused a little bit of a stir. I do not know if any of his specific views were so, like, aggressively unkind to the Anglican church as Flatland is to the circle priestly class, But I do think that the sort of climax of Flatland being this situation where Square realizes that this faith he has held is in fact not the be-all, end-all of of reality, that there are things beyond that. And as as Square surmises, like once Sphere shows Square 
the third dimension, at first Square is like, oh, so spheres are the most holy thing because they're like circles, but like lots of circles. And they can see inside people's bodies and stuff because they can go into this third dimension. But then Square starts to consider that, well, if there's a third dimension, then it holds that there could be a fourth dimension and on and on. Like there could be increasingly divine things. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at when I was like, how dare this book give me an entire complex about dimensions beyond what we can comprehend? (laughs) I think that element of like square kind of not rejecting the ideas of his quote faith wholesale, but considering them as a part of a bigger, less knowable divine. I gather that could be kind of a a, a corollary for Abbott's actual real world views versus traditional Anglican views at the time. I think it's telling that in Flatland, near the end of Flatland, one of Sphere's counters to Square's idea that greater numbers of sides, greater greater numbers of of circles, etc., is more divine. Sphere is like, does it make you more just or uh, merciful or less selfish or more loving? no so how does it make you more divine and square is like those are all women things why would we want that (laughs) i think this might just be the author calling out maybe the church is not actually super good at being the things that like the bible maybe tells you to be uh at the time as well as since flatland was sometimes accused of misogyny because of the depiction of women abbott maintains that it's satirizing the situation of Victorian women. And so like it, it, it's that way on purpose, but it's not because that's what he thinks of women. As with any satire, sometimes you might find the satire doesn't actually land and it's just kind of the thing it's trying to satirize. I feel like it works out here, but I'm also not a Victorian woman, so <laughs> I don't know. The text does make a lot of sense if you're thinking about it in a Victorian lens, which uh, I took a bit of like Victorian lit stuff in college. So I kind of have some of the background for what that era is like, what other literature is contemporaneous with this and so forth that I didn't have the first time I read it. And, And I do think that was additive to understand some of what the satire may be about. Although it was only sort of middlingly successful during his own time, Flatland has become the thing that Abbott is most remembered for. There have been, believe it or not, adaptations of Flatland into How? film. How? How? Don't know. Are they animated? I think they're animated, yeah. They'd have to be. There have also been sequels written by people not Abbott. Because, of course, Flatland is old enough that it's in the public domain. A a, a book that I encountered in high school but never ended up reading, Sphereland, which was written in 1957 by a Dutch author, and I apologize if this is just not the right way to pronounce this person's name, Dionis Berger. And then in 2001, Ian Stewart wrote Flatterland, which is also a sequel of sorts 
I have not read either of those. Maybe I'm missing something. But why is it called a romance of many dimensions? That's one thing I just didn't sort out while reading it. Although we mostly use romance in the sense of love, related to love, romance did at one time mean more general, like, excitement and mystery and adventure, maybe. Okay, okay. So so I think it's that sense of the word romance. So yeah, that's Flatland. Okay. <laughs> Do you think you would have liked this book had you encountered it during the summer between your freshman and sophomore years of high school? No. <laughs> I was way too busy being extremely, extremely angsty. A, I don't think I would have been able to sit still long enough to, like, comprehend this book. B, I don't think I was smart enough to get through it. I don't know that I was smart enough to get through it either. (laughs) (laughs) Also, if you're being really specific about the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of high school, I was 13 because I was, like, a year and a half younger than everyone in my grade i'm not sure i liked it this time yeah (laughs) i too am there (laughs) i don't i don't know my brain is very full i need a palate cleanser and like some candy and maybe a bath (laughs) i just feel tired (laughs) exhausted and confused And unsure of what I'm even supposed to think after I'm done reading this book. I think if you come to a satire without the context of what it's satirizing, it can just seem kind of weird and hard to follow or or misogynistic or something if you, for example, don't have the context to see that this is not a sincere belief that the author had. And... Although certainly we today have problems of things like classism and racism and sexism and so on, the form they take is not the same as in Victorian England. That era had a very specific structure to society, and in a lot of ways that's something that I... I, see in this book in a way that doesn't make it as translatable to i guess modern troubles even though in a broad sense we have a lot of the same problems still in our society so i don't know how well i think it ages i feel like you have to do some like background research before you read it into victorian society into the state of the Anglican church in the late 19th century and stuff. And then you're kind of prepared, but if you go into it blind, it seems like a weird math adventure with a lot of things that aren't really math. I definitely had the sense the entire time I was reading it, that I was reading something at a surface level and not understanding what was underneath. Yeah, so I have I have a hard time 
being like, wow, best book ever. <laughs> I, I think because I had more of that context this time than I did when I first read it, I did enjoy it more than when I first read it. And and I, I like talking about it, but that's also not the same as enjoying the book itself. This is maybe a two-peach book for me. Um, we rate everything on a scale of up to five giant peaches. Well, it might be like a three for me, but I would anticipate it would be like a two or lower for your average reader. I feel like a two and a half is fair. It was very interesting. It was a very interesting read because I had no idea what I was getting into and just kind of experiencing the different paths that the story took was... You know, I'm going to go 2.5 just to be kinder because, you know, sometimes you read things and you're like, okay, I know exactly where this is going. Like, I can see all the tropes lining up. I just didn't know what 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 was what was happening here. And so it kept me on my toes. And I, I like being kept on my toes. I will say, like, to its credit, it's certainly a memorable read. Yeah. There, there is some some delight to be had in the sometimes mind-bending world-building that goes on in Flatland, because there are times that it's just hard to wrap your head around it, but kind of in a good way. You're like, wow, this guy. I want to give it a three, actually. Because I know that in the past I've said I'm docking points for this book because at no point did it make me laugh or even chuckle or whatever. It had no, it had, it had no heart. It had no humor. I laughed several times reading this. She has vanished. She has died. <laughs> was very funny to me. And I I appreciate that. So yeah, okay. I'm going to stick with three. This book is going to give us a lot of geometry jokes running forward. Probably. We are going to have so many jokes about circles and triangles, and nobody is going to know what we're talking about. In In future, if I find that somebody is unhappy with me for misbehaving or, or something i do intend to use the excuse that um a sudden change of temperature was too much for my perimeter <laughs> yes <laughs> and absurd as it is when i think about a world where all the women have to wander around uttering a constant peace cry he doesn't really describe what that's like exactly you know what I pictured? I just kept picturing Xena, warrior princess, and her little, like, chakram call. <laughs> That's what I pictured the whole time. It's just this constant, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Half the population is just constantly yelling so that you don't <laughs> accidentally kill yourself by bumping into them a little bit. Pointy are they that they can just accidentally murder people with their bodies? How fast are they running around this world? Can't you just walk slowly and gently and not impale each other? Speaking of a palate cleanser, we are going to just a incredibly low common denominator here. I wanted to go revisit something I read when I was very young will very possibly not age well. Our discussion with Nuance a couple episodes ago really shook the the branches of my brain and a bunch of books 
a bunch of historical fiction books came falling to the ground and it made me want to go back and revisit the american girls books okay i'm in i did a lot of thinking about which american girl we were going to go visit and i've decided on samantha so we're gonna go read the first american girl samantha book does it have a title or is it just samantha uh its title back then was meet samantha but its title now is different because they it's complicated they bind the the books differently now into what was once a like six to eight i think book collection of very very short little books they've now taken the first half of them and turned them into one book so i need to go look at the book that i bought for this and figure out how many chapters of it are the first book i may actually end up having us read what would amount to have been, you know, back in 1995 or whatever, the first three books, because it's only available as, as a one book collection now. It's it's complicated, so we'll we'll get into that. Cool. That's exciting. My Dog Ate My Book Report is produced and edited by the hosts Rin and Brandon, each of whom can be found on Twitch as Picarito and Rin Out of Time, not respectively, even though that's what it says. Why is that not respectively? Oh, because it's reversed. Because it's reversed. <laughs> That's my fault. I wrote that part. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Have a question or a comment for the team? You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry with no e's dot net. Although there is an e in eight and report and net. I made that very complicated. I'm sorry. Or by emailing us at dogatemybookreport at gmail. We'd be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. And if you have received your millennial preaching of the gospel of three dimensions. (laughs) Thanks for listening.